You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. My guest today is Hannah Sharma. Uh, he's the CEO of Lantern Pharma. Uh, they work in the oncology area, and I'll let uh, Panna describe that more. So, Hannah, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to your uh, to the discussion. Yeah, so tell me about uh, Lantern. What's the premise of it? Yeah, I was uh, really intrigued by Lantern even prior to my arriving as CEO a little over a year ago. Uh, because the company was doing really what is the next most obvious thing in the development of cancer drugs, and that is applying artificial intelligence and machine learning and leveraging all the tremendous amounts of genomic data that's now widely available to help develop new drugs and rescue drugs that have failed in oncology in the past. And oncology today, as you know, is a very personalized, increasingly more personalized science. We're understanding more about how each cancer is so different. You know, 20 years ago, we only had four or five different known blood cancers. You know, today we have characterized virtually 100 different types of lymphomas, leukemias, myelomas. And they all are very different in terms of the way they're um, molecularly structured and in terms of what the genome of those cancer cells are. And so AI, the ability to look through all this data, and to analyze data and cells and patient genomes faster and quicker and 24 hours a day, seven days a week is a perfect problem area for AI and machine learning. And so what the premise of Lantern is, is to use the most current advances in machine learning, artificial intelligence and genomics to help rescue and develop cancer drugs faster and cheaper and with lower risk so we can get them to patients in a more personalized manner. And so, you know, we're not purely an AI company. We're not just a drug company. We're really a mixture of bringing new AI and machine learning techniques to really reinvent and accelerate the development of cancer drugs. So why would AI be needed? What, are there huge combinations or, you know, thousands oh, yeah, or tens of thousands or millions of permutations of certain elements of drugs? Oh, yeah, tens of millions. Yeah, there's, uh, in fact, could be more permutations of chemical compounds than there are, you know, galaxies out there. So it's a perfect problem area for AI. And, you know, just think inside of your own body, you have about, you know, 40 trillion cells, 30 trillion of which have DNA. And every day, you know, some of them, some of them go bizarre or errant, and, you know, your body cleans them up and it keeps disease away. But those that continue longer, are, have the potential to become cancerous and everyone's are slightly different. And so that's why you always hear about um, someone with 
on the same therapy, whether it be a PDL1 therapy or a targeted inhibitor or even chemotherapy, some patients do really, really well and they go on to have, you know, a meaningful life and they don't affect their families and others, you know, die quickly or don't respond to the drug or have other side effects. And that's not because necessarily uh, one had a more advanced cancer. It's just these cancers are that, that different. And you always hear about at the same time, not only patients responding so differently, but you also hear about these trials. And, you know, having been in the biotech space for some time, you know, I was at another company, Cancer Genetics, prior to this public company. And we did a lot of work on cancer trials, both um, for biotechs and pharmas. And you'd have these phase three trials where the drugs were very safe and effective somewhere, but they failed because some percentage of patients responded very well but some didn't respond at all and others didn't quite respond the way that was predicted. But there were patients that really got a lot of value, even though the drug failed because it wasn't effective enough or it wasn't more effective than the standard of care. And those patients, though, there were probably other patients like that. And, you know, they were not going to get the benefit of having that drug on the market. And now that we have precision pathways and we understand why those patients responded really well and we can predict that, with machine learning and AI, we can bring those drugs back to market. And so that's also, to me, is a wonderful way to accelerate the delivery of shareholder value. You have these drugs where hundreds of millions of dollars have been put into the development of that molecule, and then it gets shelved or abandoned, not because it wasn't good, but because it wasn't good enough at the time right. that we were doing trials. And today, is, the world uh, trials are totally changed. What, what is good enough, by the way? Is it just a, expressed as a percentage or... Like, what are some of the factors um, that tell you? You have to have a discussion. Yeah, you have to have typically have a discussion with the FDA. Um, but typically that is better than a standard of care. Notable improvement over the standard of care. If it's a rare disease or an orphan disease where there is no cure or there is nothing that's really used, you know, then you can have uh, maybe criteria that aren't as strict. But typically in cancer, it has to be um, statistically more um, effective than more effective and more safe, measured by safety, than the existing standard of care. But a lot of these cancers that we're discovering, as we discover more and more subtypes of cancer, and I'll give you some examples from our own portfolio of drugs, you know, there are no cures. And so the ability to bring these drugs into the market for some of these subtypes of cancers is really a phenomenal opportunity if we can really show that we can determine which patients will respond and why they'll respond. And again, these are now problems that are central to biology and, and discovery. And, you know, five years ago, we couldn't spin up, you know, 100 supercomputers in the cloud for a few thousand dollars and manage it. And today we can. And that's, you know, that's a phenomenal change. And so rather than applying it to making cars or to predicting weather or predicting traffic patterns or sending Uber drivers to your home, we're using it, those same advances in machine learning and AI and data manipulation and cloud infrastructure to solve uh, the problems around, uh, you know, around cancer and cancer biology. So just as an example, are there any particular cancers where you know the numbers on the standard of care, like what percentage uh, cure rate there is, or is it expressed in oh, months, sure. months yeah, the personal Yeah, there are, there are some of those. I can give you some examples. Uh, specifically, I think probably from our own portfolio would be best. Our most advanced, um, I'll give you an example of LP100 which is Lantern Pharma 100, our, our most advanced uh, drug that's in, currently in a phase two trial that's actively enrolling in Europe with our partner. And in, we rescued that drug because 
our founders and chief scientific officer and prior management team before I got there um, felt that drug had really good phase two data, which it did. But then it fa- failed phase three because it was tried in a prostate cancer indication. And it worked in about a little less than 15% of men, which wasn't deemed statistically good enough. So, you know, only 15% of the population in prostate cancer, um, it worked in, and this is almost 10 years ago, um, they deemed that was not going to be effective enough. But in that 15% or a little bit less than that 15% that it worked in, it worked extraordinarily well. And so there was a reason for that. And biologists at the time knew that there are different types of prostate cancer, some that you could have for 20 or 30 years and not die from, and some that you could die within two or three. But they didn't fully understand the mechanisms. Well, fast forward to 2017 and 18 and 19, and now we understand the genetics of prostate cancer much more clearly. We understand the ones that are more aggressive, the ones that are less aggressive, the ones that respond to hormone therapy, the ones that have to be removed. And so the science in cancer biology is advanced. And so we can go back and say, well, this drug worked in this subset of patients. Why, what, why was that? And so the hypothesis that we had is that it worked really well in patients that had metastatic or aggressive disease um, because of basically one of their, because of DNA damage repair and inhibition. Anyway, so we rescued that drug by looking at that thesis. We looked at, okay, well, this trial should be redesigned for men who have prostate cancer where it's now metastatic and where they are hormone refractory. And again, that's about a 12% of the population globally gets that disease, 12% of the prostate cancer population. So that's a subset of a subset of prostate cancer. And so with that thesis, we were able to convince the regulatory bodies that look at, here's the underlying data on why this drug works in this subset because of this mechanism. And this mechanism is only mostly involved in these patients and our drug works actively here because of these reasons. And they said, well, great, let's, let's design a trial around that subset of hormone refractory metastatic prostate cancer patients. And that's what we're doing. So it's a very targeted population. And so far, we're more, about halfway through the trial and, and the patients are responding well. And there's been a high level of tolerability of the drug. So we're very hopeful. And again, where, you know, a lot of these paths didn't exist, you know, five years ago. Where is the, uh, where does the AI come in? What, what requires the intense computation? Uh, going through thousands and thousands of genes across hundreds of samples or hundreds of different scenarios. So it's, you know, we're looking at a lot of biological filtering and correlation analysis and, you know, trying to do it in tandem because as we enroll these patients, these patients have to be not only metastatic, which, which is easy to tell, but they also have to have a certain um, gene profile. And so affirming that gene profile takes time. It could take one, historically, when I was in my prior biotech, it would take us maybe two years to develop a good genetic signature. Uh, And that was if we had some good ideas about the genes that were involved and, you know, the pathways. And it would take an interdisciplinary team. Not that you couldn't do it without AI, but you could. But it would take a good two years and, you know, a good cross-functional team, a lot of really smart people um, working together, biologists, geneticists, bioinformaticians, lab folks. And so it was a complex and expensive process. And so that process to develop that genetic signature now can take, instead of two years and a team of 10 to 12, it can take us maybe three months and a team of two or three. And that's because we're able to put this data in the cloud and crunch through the millions and millions of permutations of genetic signatures, do back testing, 
do various forms of analysis, put scenarios in place and get more confidence that the signature we're coming up with is going to be predictive of the outcome that we want. And so AI really allows us to do it cheaper, faster, and with greater confidence. So what do you envision in the future as to uh, you know the role of, well, do you think AI will allow N of one or just literally individual customized treatments for people? Like you'll be able to sequence and profile someone and come up with a, a drug t- scheme that's literally unique to them, whether it's the strength yeah, or combinations, whatever. Yeah, or even combination therapy. So as you come up with combination therapies, you know, more than one drug being used at a time, you know, like it is, for example, in AIDS, um, you know, it's a combination therapy ultimately that has kept AIDS at bay and has worked really well. It's, you know, three drugs being worked on together. Eventually in cancer, I think a lot of the cancers will not necessarily go away, but they will be better managed and they'll be managed through combinations. And those combinations, I think, are going to become increasingly more and more personalized. Maybe not N of one, but maybe it's you know N of a thousand or N of five hundred or N of fifty. But yes, there will be increasing levels of personalization of in cancer therapy. And this, you know, just purely just the numbers. If you look at the numbers of all the genetic data that we're gathering on patients, both pre-cancer as well as after they get cancer, all that data needs to be put to good use. And you know, you just can't you know fill up rooms and rooms full of just you know, bioinformaticians and statistical folks to do that. You know, they have to eat, they have to sleep, they have biases. Um, And so this is, again, a perfect problem where you can develop AI and that AI can go on to develop its own AI. So, you know, instead of just using one algorithm, it can, you can actually have it perform and create other algorithms. So that's also the very interesting thing around where AI is going. So as you do kind of the, you know, nearest fit, and nearest neighbor, and you create different algorithms and train them. Um, you know, every time you do one of these sets, you learn something new. And so that is, um, you know, one of my visions is to really create um, a process where we're constantly refining and updating the algorithms by which we're identifying how drugs interact with our genes, and more importantly, are able to predict how those genes are going to allow us to either respond really well to a drug or not or to a drug combination. And so I think that is the future of how drugs will be developed and more importantly, how trials will be designed. And so that's, you know, I'm really excited about because that's a multi-billion trillion dollar problem. And, and uh, you know, right now, as you know, it costs almost $2 billion. If you look at different studies, anywhere between 800 million and $2 billion to develop a cancer drug. And we need to take some, we need to take some numbers off that. We need to take some zeros off that, especially given how expensive cancer therapy has become. And so if you imagine that our population is only going to get older and cancer will become more prevalent as we age, you know, how do we continue finding solutions? And so part of that is going to, I believe is definitely going to be the application of machine learning and the application of um, high throughput genomic analysis to develop and deliver these therapies. So have you seen any uh, commonalities that can make your models more efficient? Yeah, because you're using AI, maybe in the solution space or the answer space, you're seeing areas that can be cut out or assumed or baked into the model to make the models themselves, you know, uh, exponentially more efficient. You know, not not yet. I I don't think we've exhausted enough of our space right now. We have about a hundred million data points, close to a hundred million data points, real world data points of drug tumor interactions in our model, uh, radar and our platform. Uh, And we'd like to get to about 350 million next year. Um, 
And right now, again, our models has about 140 different drugs built into it. Um, and again, I'd like to increase that number a little bit also. So I think there's no real, I would say, commonality. There are certain things that we're seeing inside of certain cancers like prostate, for example, or non-small cell lung cancer. There are certain um, ways that we're tweaking the algorithm based on our understanding of what goes on in that cancer. So we give certain biological filters more weight than others based on our discussions with experts. And so, yeah, some of that, I would say maybe not the models themselves, maybe certain weights or certain traits or certain filters we give a little bit more weight to or a little bit more bias towards when looking at a specific subtype of cancer, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, I just wondered, you know, because again, the solution space is so vast. It would be nice if AI found a way again where uh, you can lop off maybe, a, you know, a tenth of the of the solution space because it seems to have commonality or maybe that would elucidate, you know, common pathways to attack any kind of cancer. You know, I don't know. I guess one way is to solve it for the individual person and one way is to find commonalities that would apply across, you know, a vast number of people. No, yeah, I, yeah. I think we are. You know, there are certain, like I said, there are certain filters that we use. So, for for example, if you know we find someone that has a, you know, we're working on a certain problem right now with in breast and ovarian cancer, and we are making certain assumptions if people have BRCA one or two gene mutations or certain germline mutations that they inherit, and so we are making certain assumptions there about how that cancer may respond to one of our drugs versus if patients don't have it. Um, and that is definitely something that, that we have learned and also more importantly proven through the literature and also, you know, we've modeled out in cell line and rat studies as well. So, yeah, I would say that we're finding those, although the, this problem area is so new that we are very, very slow to make biases or reach or make certain shortcuts or conclusions because, you know, we're just learning so much more every, you know, every month right now. I gotcha. Um, are you... Are you profiling then the, the constituent cells of tumors in people that have various cancers? Are you looking at, yes, we are. you know, okay, so yeah. looking at the gene expression of those cells, even, they're heter- even though they're heterogeneous, you're able to look at, I mean, how many different types of constituent cells of a, of a given cancer, of a given tumor? Uh, it depends the number, but, you know, typically we try to get a pretty high tumor burden in the cells we look at. So, even this, you know, so we are, you know, when we get, for example, a biopsy of ovarian or liver or prostate tissue, you know, we're trying to take only the cells that have and that are cancerous based on the pathology report or based on the uh, tissue analysis. And so the tumor burden in the cells that we're looking at is fairly high. So it's not like, you know, it's one out of a thousand. I mean, we're looking at tumor burden that's often, you know, 10, 15, 30, 50 percent. Well, okay. I mean, but even within there, let's say if you're just looking at a solitary tumor, you know, from what I've heard, in order to identify it, it has typically a, a billion cells in it. How many different types of, uh, not really cell types, but how many different gene expression profiles are there within a given tumor even? Have you guys elucidated oh, there, there be, are yeah, thousands, yeah, there millions? Be, there, can, uh, there definitely can be hundreds. There definitely can be hundreds. And there's teasing out that commonality as part of the challenge. Absolutely. Uh, has there been much observed commonality in their expression, or is that is, that, is each uh, expression pathway like totally different? 
Uh, so within a tumor, there is some observed commonality, and you know we, that's in the literature. And so we try to work off of that. Um, but also the expression patterns will change based on how the drug reacts to the tumor. And so that's also a big part of our of our analysis in secret sauce is you know we don't really care just about the underlying tumor. What we also care about is what is the tumor's response to our drug or to our drug combination. Because eventually our, our goal is, isn't just to diagnose the patient at all. Our, our goal really is to treat the cancer with our drug. And so we're really focused on what is the effect on that expression level. Even if the expressions are different, does it have the desired effect to kill off the cell? And do we see a sign of that once the, once the drug is eluded into the tumor or into the cell line or into the sample? So one of the studies that we're doing right now with one of our partners, uh, Center for Translational Research, and investigation in, in Northern Ireland is that we're taking uh, live prostate biopsy material from patients who are already going to undergo, you know, traditional um, prostate cancer therapy, which is typically radiotherapy or ablation or removal. Um, so they're going to undergo that, and so we get a piece of the prostate biopsy. We then expose that fresh biopsy material to our drugs both as monotherapy and also as combination therapy to see if it has the effect of killing off or, you know, reducing the tumor burden in each of those wells. And so that gives us a sense of, you know, what is the right drug to potentially give to these patients if the prostate cancer recurs. And so, yes, the initial starting expression level isn't going to be the same, but it'll, there will be similarities and patterns. But then the key pattern we're looking for is, you know, what is the expression level um, once our drug is introduced into the tumor system. You know, are we seeing enough of a signal and can we predict where it'll be effective and where it will not be effective? Are you using multiple drugs or just one drug at a time? Uh, we're testing for both. So we, we have uh, our own drug. We have some various forms of our one drug. So we might have a positive enantiomer. We might have a negative enantiomer. We may have a mixture of both, what's called a racemic, racemic mixture. We may have our drug with the existing standard of care, our drug with um, a chemotherapy agent, our drug with another potential novel drug. So we look at various forms to really optimize, you know, how is our drug going to work best? And we also, you know, sometimes depending on the study, we may have it at, at different, you know, dose ranges to do dose range finding. And again, a lot of this work is, isn't just done in the lab, but it's also done in silico. You know, we try to do this work um, in the machine also to, so that we can check our predictions in the machine versus reality. And we use whatever deltas or differences that we learn to make the next iteration of predictions better and better. So it's, you know, really, I think this is kind of the future of drug discovery where you're using machine methods alongside traditional laboratory methods. And, you know, our team is a perfect example where, you know, half of them are traditional cancer biologists and uh, cancer researchers and the other half are AI and bioinformaticians and machine learning people. And so it's a real mixture. And I think that really is the future of how drug discovery will become more efficient and more productive. Are there, um, so you're looking at the DNA level. Are you looking at the, I mean, are you able to look at, we're the, looking at the We're looking at most, we're mostly looking at the RNA. So we're looking at RNA, okay. which is expression level. And we do look at DNA, you know, um, again, DNA will give us a good indicator of what the disease is or subtypes, but DNA doesn't do a great job of telling you necessarily um, what the drug interaction will be inside of the cancer cell. 
And so that's why we look at RNA expression, or sometimes we even look at epigenetic expression. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because you look at RNA expression, you're, you're probably capturing some, at least, of the epigenetic uh, changes that occur. Yeah, we, we, we are capturing it. And sometimes, like you said, in some cancers, it's more useful and known that, you know, these epigenetic factors will drive drug reaction or not drive drug reaction. So, again, it typically depends on the tumor subtype. Are you able to look at and see if there's a lineage in a given tumor, meaning which cells came first, which led to other cells? You know, it's very heterogeneous, but legend has it, you know, tumors start out as one cell and then they, you know, they divide and grow into billions of cells. So are you able to trace the path of growth? Uh, we're probably not able to trace the tra- path of growth, but what the question you're referring to is a bigger one, and that's around clonality. And that we are able to do, although in some of our studies, it's not that important. But clonality is important because a tumor may arise not from just one cell, maybe a number of cells that are cancerous. And those clones, those initial cells can be very different. And they oftentimes fight with one another. And so in many cancers where the cancer will come back, lung cancer being one of them, multiple myeloma being another one, um, brain tumors being another one, um, oftentimes you'll treat the initial clone cancer that basically has outgrown the other cancers trying to compete. And as you continue treating that initial clone, that clone and the cancers, cancer cells related to that clone will die off because uh, you've weakened them or you've compromised them and allows the cancer cells from another clone to take over. And oftentimes you're still working on killing the initial clone and it gives weeks or months for the other clone to take over. And you often hear of someone responding really well to treatment and then two years later or a year later some time later, they'll die again of cancer. And that's not because the cancer, that cancer came back. It oftentimes is that it was a different clone in that same cancer that took over. That happens in multiple myeloma quite rapidly. And so that's one of the areas um, where I initially got a lot of knowledge about, you know, these clones and how these clones would compete for taking over the body and then lung cancer. And so again, my prior job, I did a lot of work with the Mayo Clinic and in multiple myeloma, we had a partnership, a joint venture, and where we got to learn a lot about um, the clonal theories around uh, cancer. And the same thing in lung cancer, you know, our, our company, we did all of the testing for one of the biggest lung cancer trials, um, an international trial with massive amounts of biomarker work. And again, we saw that the analysis of the initial uh, DNA and RNA and some of these protein levels um, weren't sufficient enough to really correlate to response until you started looking at things like expression and other epigenetic events. And again, you know, there were some theories that oftentimes, you know, you would treat one clone and that's why someone would come back 18 months or 14 months later because that was just enough time for the other cancer to grow and take over. And so although that isn't part of our study today, um, you know, again, we're not really a diagnostic company, we're a therapy company. It does help advance our understanding of cancer, and it does help us advance perhaps that we should look at combinations, especially if we know that there are multiple clones at work. If we can diagnose that earlier, perhaps we can also then improve the outcome by suggesting a certain therapy earlier. And so that is That's something that you know, we put. Yeah. Because, I, yeah, I had thought the theory was that, um, you know, let's say you have a, a you know, cancer and you hit it with chemotherapy, the cancer cells themselves change and their gene expression changes and then they're able to resist that treatment in the future. But you're saying there's 
at least the secondary, maybe the predominant mechanism is that it just allows other clonal, clonal lineages to compete more effectively and thereby those arise and they wouldn't respond in the same way as the previous lineage. Yeah, I mean, both things are happening. I mean, one, the cells are exchanging their expression because they are becoming more resistant. They're becoming smarter. Um, but oftentimes, the other thing will happen is that, you know, some of these cytotoxic or chemotherapies are so powerful. You know, they, you know, they kill off all so many cells, both wanted and unwanted, and it allows a totally different clone to arise. And that definitely is what happens in certain cancer types that have been modeled more closely, like multiple myeloma, um, like certain B-cell cancers, uh, like some certain lung cancers as well. Um, but it, yeah, both, both things are at work that you mentioned. One is, yes, you know, they do become resistant and they become smarter. But at the same time, there are typically in some of these cancer categories, there are multiple clones that are trying to compete. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. It reminds me of like the microbiome. You know, if you have a healthy microbiome, uh, then you take antibiotics, for instance, and they kill off the predominant actors and allow things like C. difficile to take over, which is, you know, let's say a pathogen. It sounds like in, in cancer, maybe something similar. I'm just speculating, but, you know, you have a certain cancer that, that acts and then you attack it with chemotherapy, it retreats, but then it allows a more aggressive cell to, uh, you know, to predominate and take over. Yeah. So again, you know, modeling this through is exactly why, you know, having a data and AI driven platform helps. It allows you to ask questions faster. Not necessarily that you'll be right. It's just, you know, it allows you to ask and iterate more rapidly. And with that, you can identify, you know, potentially more drugs and more drug types and perhaps even, you know, develop things so that you feel more comfortable taking them into the clinical setting. So again, you know, for us, AI isn't is, you know, it is not the answer. You know, we're not an AI company. We're leveraging AI as the latest tool to basically develop drugs faster, cheaper, better, and more targeted. And so it's, um, you know, that's why, again, we continue to think it's a, it's a, AI is a perfect um, type of technology and approach um, for drug discovery and specifically in cancer, because we have so much genomic data and so much more biological data available to us. Do you think there's a fear of complexity that holds back you know, scientific effort. Because I've spoken to many, many companies and I'll say, what about this? What about that? And they'll say, oh, well, we focus on this. Is it, you think it's because shying away from the, the true complexity of the thing? And, you know, because you use AI, does that allow you to embrace it more and incorporate more into your models? Um, it definitely there is because, you know, you know, machines just have greater hard memory and don't eat or sleep. You know, there is a way that we can start asking bigger, broader sets of questions. We can look at vaster, pro, you know, bigger problem areas. But like anything, I think you have to really focus if you're going to solve the problem. You know, so there are reasons why we're not looking at Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis, all which have, you know, their own sets of data and their own sets of issues and, you know, probably can benefit from machine, machine learning and AI-driven approaches. Um, so I think there is something to be said about focusing. So we're focusing initially only in, small molecules, mostly in solid tumor, um, where we can derive a clear stratification for response. And so that, that's our first initial area. It doesn't mean that we won't expand beyond that. But I think once we prove to investors and more, you know, to patients and investors that we can do that well, I think that we can, a- we can ask bigger problems. You can, you know, we can, as you mentioned, go after vast, you know, vaster areas of the problem area. But yes, I mean, machine learning definitely allows you to do that. I mean, 
you know, there, there has been no database that I know of or no platform that's trying to approach reaching, you know, 1 billion um, data points of drug tumor interaction specifically in oncology. And so that's where we will be by the end of 2021. And so I think, you know, that just allows us to ask and look at questions in a totally different level than has been done before in drug development. Do you have a, a preferred model or substrate that you use? Like, do you work with companies that make organoids? And is that your preferred model to um, test the efficacy of drugs? Or is there another way? I think one of the things I always learned early on in cancer is you cannot have preferences. You know, every cancer, with, you know, brain cancer, liver cancer, stomach cancer, they're all very, very, they all can be very, very different. But yeah, we use 3D models like organoids. In fact, we have a collaboration we'll be announcing at a major university and medical center where we're looking at specific types of organoids to augment our, um, augment our data in urogenital cancers. Um, but yeah, we, we do think the use of 3D models and organoids, if done properly and with the right quality control, the right background on the organoids, analysis of the lineage of the initial cell lines, that they can be a very, very powerful tool and accelerate studies. Um, but like anything, you got to be you got to be very thoughtful about how the organoids were developed and what the precursor cell was and what the process was and what genomic drift happened f- between taking it from the patient to the actual organoid being developed. And so those are all things that you have to uh, QC for. Well, very good. Well, Pana, this has been super interesting. What's the best way for people to find out more about what Lantern's doing? Yeah, obviously our website, Lantern Pharma, is a great place. You know, we have. Uh, three three drugs in development, another early stage compound that we're refining, and we have active clinical trials going on. But lanternpharma.com, uh, they can also follow us at LinkedIn or on Twitter at Lantern Pharma. And I often talk a lot about AI and cancer at my Twitter handle, the real Pana, P-A-N-N-A. And so they can also learn a lot about kind of the, the leading edge issues around genomics and um, AI around cancer there as well. That's great. Well, Pana, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate the questions and I love the conversation. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.